This episode contains strong language and mature subject matter. It may not be suitable for young ears. What up? This is Luce Fleming. You've come to the place where we tell tales of the train and bus yard, the tenement yard and the prison yard. We detail close calls and chase stories. We dig into larger conversations about crossing boundaries, the other side of the tracks, borders, and forbidden space. Whether to make big life changes, to forward the artistic or professional practice, to escape peril, or just for the sheer thrill of it. And I remember conspiring with my seven-year-old friend and the other ones to kill the coyote once he came out. And I remember having meetings with the other little boys outside that we were going to kill him. Like, I remember I was so angry. I felt responsible for all the kids. And I said, if we kill him, there's no way we're going to cross over and see our parents again. Today, I am honored to have Guadalupe Maravilla tell his own border crossing yard tale. Lupe is a transdisciplinary artist living in New York City. I say transdisciplinary because he not only paints, makes sculpture, does video and performance, but he also brings his practice into politics, social justice, teaching, and healing. So sit back and let Lupe tell us his own border crossing yard tale. Uh, my name is Guadalupe Maravilla. I go by Lupe for short. A couple years ago, I changed my name from Irving Morazan to Guadalupe Maravilla to show solidarity to my father, who's undocumented, who uses the name Maravilla, his fake identity. My father bought his um, fake identity from a Mexican who was a U.S. citizen, and he moved to Mexico, and then he sold his papers to my father. He looks just like him. So he carries his name, and that's why he changed his last name. And to show solidarity with him during these harsh political times, I decided to change my last name to Maravilla. And I'll tell you how uh, he became undocumented and how I became undocumented. Uh, so we'll just go back to 1984 in El Salvador. Uh, it was the height of the civil war that was happening there. Um, it was the uh, civil war and the guerrillas were winning the war. Once the U.S. intervened, things heated up. It was also during the Cold War. So the U.S. was terrified that El Salvador would become communist. And somehow Russia and Cuba were on the other side feeding weapons to the guerrillas, and the U.S. was feeding weapons to the military. Uh, the U.S. trained death squads in Florida, North Carolina. And eventually anyone that was protesting against the war or had any, any suspect of, of any opposition to the military, to the government, were considered communists. So one day, uh, my uncle, who was a protester at the university, was protesting with his friends, with colleagues in the university in El Salvador. And they were taken by the military. 
and they were missing for two weeks. They were kidnapped, basically, uh, from their dorms in university and taken. One afternoon, like, uh, there were some bodies that were hanging from their legs in the tree, and they were beheaded. Their heads were missing. And my father recognized his brother because he was wearing the shirt that he had purchased for him. And after that, uh, my family and myself were all considered to be communist. And they decided to come after my father and my mother. So immediately my father, you know, he was actually like a car mechanic in, in the Mercedes dealer. He was doing really well for himself. He had to, like, escape El Salvador and come to the United States because if not, they would have just killed him just the way they did to his brother. My mother stayed with us, but she was also at, at risk. They were coming for her, so she decided to leave. It was too dangerous for her to go with us as well, so it was easier just to leave my sister and myself with my grandmother in the countryside, so uh, she decided to leave. It was too dangerous for her also. On top of that, there was the civil war at its at its height, so it was like kind of like okay, my parents are like fleeing for their lives, but also they don't want to risk us in this journey. Um, they were hoping that maybe things will come down and they were able to like take us through the United States, like uh, with with our paperwork because they apply for refugee status. And unfortunately, like uh, I think more than half of the country applied for refugee status, so it was like, really impossible for the paperwork to, you know, just to get through so fast. Somehow my sister's paperwork cleared and she was able to fly out. So then it was just being me and my grandmother in the house. And keep in mind, El Salvador is probably the size of New Jersey. And during this 12-year civil war, about 365,000 people were killed and unknown number were missing and this was brother against brother, sister against sister, fighting in the war. A very tiny country. You know, my cousins were in the military. They had their cousins that were, that were guerrillas and then everyone else in between. Uh, it's a very difficult time. So after that, I was in the countryside with my grandmother, going back between her house in San Salvador to San Vicente. And... A bomb hit the house next to us from a helicopter. Uh, they were targeting gorillas that were there, and there was like, really no one there. It was just like an old lady and her dog that got killed next to us. When that happened, my uncle and my family were terrified of my grandmother and myself, and she had papers, so they were able to fly her out. And at that point, I was left alone at eight years old in San Salvador, to kind of fend for myself. And they had my nanny, who was just like the housekeeper, and then she would just kind of be, started watching me. It was like a really interesting time because I was like a street kid, and I used to run around in a pack of like 12 boys. At that point, I hadn't seen my mother in two years. I hadn't seen my father in four years. So from like age six to eight, I was in with my mother. And so I was kind of like this kid that was in the streets all the time, playing in the mud, playing soccer, climbing trees, playing with the animals and the nature. It's like kind of, I have, I actually have like really beautiful memories of those times. I was an artist. I was an artist since I was two years old. Before I could even talk, I was already drawing and I was making sketches and I was considered to be like the artist in the neighborhood all the time. 
Uh, I remember one time this one friend that brought me a sketch of his cousin and he had made clouds and he used shading. He goes, wow, you can't do this. So you're not the big shot artist. And I'm like, wow. I was, remember seeing these clouds and I was blown away. I was like, how did he do this? How does he do shading? And <laughs> I was like really like, wow, like humbled <laughs> at the time. And I was probably like four or five years old. You know, I don't even remember. Tripachuca, which is a, this drawing game, which when you put pairs of numbers in a piece of paper, it's a game that uh, you alternate with someone else and you take odds and evens. Basically, you connect one number to the next by drawing a line. The only rule is you cannot touch anything, uh, nothing on the paper, another number, another line. And to me, it starts to form almost like this bond between two people. It's almost like a fingerprint mapping of two people, and it's always different. Uh, so as a kid, we used to play this game to the extreme. Like maybe in a piece of paper, you put like up to 100 numbers in there. Sharpeners to sharpen the points of the lead to make sure that we can squeeze our lines to just like small spaces. And even use magnifying glasses to make sure we don't touch lines. And I guess whoever touches the line first loses, so there's like a competitive aspect to it. But I do remember like, having this really amazing childhood and playing soccer. And, you know, sometimes we play soccer and the military would come and play soccer with us. And they'll take the ball and play with us for like five minutes and they'll keep going. You know, and sometimes the military, if you really think about it, they're, they're young. Some of them were under 18. They had rifles in their arms. Well, next thing you know, 20 minutes later, the gorillas will swim by the neighborhood and play soccer with us. And then within minutes, there was a battle down the street or a couple blocks away. And then a helicopter would come by, drop some bombs. Also, I remember like, my grandmother, sometimes uh, when she was still there, she would hide me from the military because um, I was a little bit taller at, at seven years old. And so apparently at 10 years old, they can take you and make you a child soldier. It was completely like a thing. So I remember she would hide us in the roof of the house when the military was around because they just might take me. And all the older kids would be hiding as well. She was just really paranoid because I was just a little bit taller, but I was still only seven. But they, yeah, possibility I could have been a child soldier. So that that was always one thing about the soldiers. Even though they played soccer with me, I was always like, okay, I got to be careful because they might just take me with them. I had another kid in the neighborhood that was taken by them. He was only 11 years old. I never heard of him again. At the same time, I also remember going to tons of funerals when I was little. I remember particularly seeing like a little girl who went to school with me about seven years old with an open casket. And we knew she was just had gotten killed in the crossfire. Uh, it was very clear to us at seven years old. But everyone, all the adults would tell us, oh, she's sleeping, she's sleeping. We're just like, okay, we know, <laughs> we know the deal already. Like we're very aware of what's happening. And it's interesting seeing it from a kid's perspective the idea of death was something that we actually understood pretty clearly. And adults, I guess they, they were a little bit in denial that we knew this much at this point. I can't believe like this was actually part of my own childhood. 
But I remember being afraid, but also being really kind of, it's like part of life. Growing up in this environment, it's like really, it's just life like everything else. And also during this time, I was actually like, I was in a Menudo cover band, which is like really absurd at the same time. Um, we're rehearsing, we're playing, we're playing the churches, we're playing the school, we're like really, you know, we didn't we would go on tour, but we're performing all the time. It was like we had synchronized dancing, singing, and I particularly I remember the Suite Mimoto song. And it's like uh, jumping my motorcycle and just like a lot of roaring motorcycles that happens. And somehow that later became part of my work. So there's a connection to that. So uh, eventually, one afternoon, I was in the house in San Salvador with the nanny. And bullets got sprayed all over our living room. And she grabbed me, threw me on the floor, and covered me. At that point, she called my parents in the United States. They were actually in New Jersey at the time. And she said, look, we need to get him out of here. This is too dangerous. I I just can't watch him. I don't want to be responsible for his life. Uh, We need to get him out of here. She wanted also to, like, leave and go home to her, like, to the country and just hide and get away from the situation. Uh, So she didn't want to be responsible for me anymore either. My parents had no choice. They hired a coyote, and a coyote is a person who smuggles undocumented immigrants over the U.S.-Mexico border. But it's also very complicated because El Salvador and the U.S.-Mexico border are very far. Back then, it was just like, um, it was brand new. I was I was part of the first wave of undocumented children to come from El Salvador into the U.S. It was 1984. I was eight years old, and I went from El Salvador to Honduras to Guatemala, all the way up through Mexico into Tijuana, and eventually to San Diego, San Isidro, San Diego. So when I started my journey, I went to Honduras first. And when we got to Honduras... There was, um, I remember eating pupusas, and if you're not familiar with a pupusa, it's basically, it's like a thick tortilla, and it has cheese fillings and, or beans and meat in combination of a lot of things. And it comes from El Salvador. So we went to a pupuseria, and I remember I was eating the pupusas with my hands because Salvadorans eat the pupusas with their hands. They don't use utensils. It's kind of part of the culture. And I remember seeing in the restaurant eating the pupusas with my hands, and someone came up to me and said, oh, you're Salvadorian because you're eating pupusas with your hands. And I was terrified that they had found me, that I was going to get sent back. And from there on, I decided not to eat pupusas with my hands anymore. I started using the utensils just out of fear of getting caught. And in my head, everyone's looking for me, right? They're like looking for me to send me back. And from Honduras, I went to Guatemala on bus. And basically, all the way to Tijuana, I was being passed around from person to person, sometimes a grandmother on the bus. Sometimes I would sleep in someone's couch. Sometimes I would sleep with a family and have, like, a full dinner with them or a lunch. Next thing you know, I'm waking up. There's a grandmother making me a breakfast somewhere. And it was just, like, from house to house, regular people. I don't know. I guess they were connected to the network of coyotes that tons of children just kind of go from house to house to house. 
So they're kind of set up for that to have visitors uh, that come for like a day or a night. And after almost like a two-month journey, we made it to Tijuana. It just took very long. I wasn't in contact with my parents. I wasn't in contact with anyone. They didn't know where I was. Eventually, we, I got to a hotel in Tijuana. At this point, I was eight years old. I was really hard at that point. Like I, fe- I felt like I was never going to see my parents again. I was still crying a lot, you know. I was very emotional. But I felt like I, I was felt very strong at the same time. I remember being in, in the hotel with a dozen other little kids, and I was the oldest one of all these kids that were there. Everyone else was younger. I felt like I was uh, had more responsibility in, in the group, and I made friends. So I was in the hotel room for two weeks, and the coyote would come and take a kid every night, one by one. And eventually it was my turn, and he wanted me to memorize like a little bit of English. He wanted me to speak enough English in case the Border Patrol I started asking me questions who I was. And I was supposed to pass off as his son, and his son's American, and he went to school in America, so he wanted me my English to be somewhat passable. And I remember, like, addresses and phone numbers and this kind of thing, and I just couldn't. I would cry every night. I didn't have it in me to remember anything. And he would get frustrated with me. He was just like, I can't take you unless you memorize this. I'll come back tomorrow for you. He will come back the next day. And again, not, I wasn't ready. I couldn't memorize anything. I was just too emotional. And then he would leave. Sometimes he would leave for three days. We wouldn't see him. So there was no food. I, you know, he had this white dog, this beautiful, like, dirty white dog. It's mutt. It would just be with us. And I decided to go into the market. And at first we started stealing fruit from the market. And people would chase after us. And then I eventually, the old ladies caught on and said, what is this kid always stealing food? And I would bring back the food and give it to the other kids because they were younger. And the old ladies would caught on, the old ladies at the market, and they were just like, oh, wow, like these kids like are just hungry. So they started giving us food. I remember getting these like styrofoam containers, and I would take food back to the rest of the kids, and we'll all eat. And I remember the food being too spicy, you know, El Salvador wouldn't use spices like they do in Mexico, and the food was too spicy. So I couldn't even eat it, but I would eat it anyway because I was so hungry. One night, the coyote came over, and there was a little girl that was with us, and he took her into the room and he raped her. And I remember conspiring with my seven-year-old friend and the other ones to kill the coyote once he came out. And I remember having meetings with the other little boys outside that we were gonna kill him. Like I remember I was so angry and I felt responsible for all the kids. And I said, if we kill him, there's no way we're gonna cross over and see our parents again. I really remember having this conversation. So the little girl was about maybe six or seven years old. I don't know what happened to that little girl. Bless her. I have no idea what happened to her after that. But, yeah, that's something that I I cannot forget. It's kind of crazy at being eight years old and conspiring to kill someone, but that's that's how it was. And, And we didn't have the courage because we felt like if we, number one, if we don't kill him, he's gonna kill us. And the other thing is, we'll never see our families again.
And this is something that, that is still happening now. That's why my parents uh, were really lucky that my sister's paperwork clear because they were terrified to send her through coyotes because usually these girls get molested of all ages, even the women, the mothers, the children, like all women are in complete danger, and some boys too, obviously, of being molested. Um, there's predators all over that space, even more so now than before. They're just waiting for these desperate people to come by to take advantage of the situation. Yeah, so we just kind of let her go. I don't know. Even today, I still think about her. I'm like, oh, what happened to her? And what's happening to all these beautiful children and women that are coming over? Um, it's just very difficult. So eventually, the coyote came back, and he said to me, um, okay, we're crossing. And, you know, this amazing white dog that actually became very loyal to me probably even more so than him, um, was all around with us the whole time. I felt like I had a bond with this animal, this beautiful mutt, amazing white, dirty dog. He was completely dirty all the time. And the dog came with us. Hey, guys. This is Luce, the producer of Yard Tales. I wanted to take a minute to ask you for a favor. A show like this takes a lot of time and effort to produce. We're not a big team. It's mostly just me. We don't have sponsors contributing money or influencing what I make or what I say. This is independent media. If that's something you support, please help me to keep making this show and providing it to you for free by donating to Yard Tales. Even one dollar helps. But if even a small percentage of listeners gave the price of one of those fancy gourmet slices of pizza that you eat, well, you get the picture. Just go to yardtails.live slash donate and click on the button that says donate now. That's yardtails.live slash donate. Any amount is really appreciated. Thank you so much. And now let's get back to Guadalupe's border crossing. It was about three or four in the morning. Uh, I was in a, in kind of like a Jeep kind of car, like a pickup truck. And a dog was in the back with me. And I was laying in the back of this car. Here we are getting close to the border patrol. And I was in the back kind of sleeping. And the dog got on top of me, covered me. It's a big dog. And he said, the driver, the coyote, do not move. I don't see you. We're going to just try to sneak you in. Don't make a sound. And we got to the Border Patrol. I think the Border Patrol was kind of sleeping. It was just kind of like a quiet night. Not a lot of cars. And he kind of, I guess he glanced around, didn't see us. And he said, just can okay. I remember him saying, okay, you can just go. car passed the coyote was like celebrating I remember the dog got off of me and I looked at the window and I saw a little American flags I guess it's San Cidro. and he dropped me off in a house a big house full of toys it was like heaven 
There was so many grandmothers there, a bunch of kids. Everyone's playing. They started cooking. They showered me. They gave me new clothes. They gave me a bed, a clean bed, food, so much food. I ate so much. And I was there for three days. I didn't want to leave. I was in paradise playing with tons of children. And then eventually I had some extended relatives come pick me up, take me to, um, I guess, to the airport, maybe in San Diego, I don't know. And I flew to JFK, and my parents were there. I remember seeing my mother immediately. I hadn't seen her in two years. She was waiting for me. I remember her crying, hugging me. My sister was there, too, also hugging me and crying. She was three years older than me. She was 11. I was eight. And my father also, I hadn't seen him in four years. I don't, I don't even remember him at that point. He was a complete stranger. And yeah, we just, they took me to Times Square, like on the way to New Jersey. And I remember seeing Times Square and all the lights and all the graffiti and, and all the ghetto blasters and all the hip hop. And I was just like blown away. It was kind of, wow, what is this universe? So here I am in 1984 in New Jersey, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and then Newark. Everything you would think of, of New York in the 80s was happening in Newark as well. Brick City, graffiti. My sister eventually was dating um, just this kind of major drug dealer that had like five pit bulls. And we used to visit my, my sister with these ghetto blasters. And like I started really getting influenced by the hip hop culture of that time. From age 8 to, like, 14, I felt like I was just, like, learning to speak English. I didn't have much connection to New Jersey for those times, but I was just, like, in taking ESL classes, learning how to speak English and all these things. But the minute I turned 14, I wanted to go back to Times Square. <laughs> you know, I had this connection to New York City, the Puerto Rican lowriders, to the ghetto blasters, to the hip-hop, to the gothic. I was so obsessed with this culture, you know, and I continued to make art as a kid. I kept drawing. But when I f turned 14, 15 years old, I started missing class, and I would just take the pass train to New York City, and I started hanging out here. And of art was always a big part of it. Uh, eventually, I went to SVA when I turned 23 uh, for photography. During those times, I used to sleep in a casket that I've made myself. It was like hardcore kind of gothic phase. You know, it was like this Afro-Latino gothic group that I used to hang out with. Uh, we used to wear black skirts and long black hair down to my belly button and... Yeah, that was that was the lifestyle that, that I kind of grew up with. And, and I really, like, I was here in New York City for the whole thing. I was always commuting. I used to, like, I li lived here for six months. I was going back and forth between here and Newark. And eventually, at 21, I had a girlfriend here. I just kind of moved here, and then I just never left. I went to SVA for photography, and eventually I went to Hunter. I was, 30, like, 33 years old. I got into my MFA, and I started doing sculpture. So in 2012, I was turning 36 years old. But what's really interesting about 2012 is the calendar. 
Um, if you look at the calendar, it was like, for my birthday, it was December 12th. This is the year of the Guadalupe. You know, the Guadalupe is um, celebrated. It's the Virgin Saint of South America. And she celebrated in Latin America on December 12th. That's the day I was born. That's why I changed my name to Guadalupe. So on 2012, the calendar says 12, 12, 12. It was all 12s. And since I was a little kid, I remember seeing that. And it's like, wow. I'm going to have a birthday that's all 12s, and I'm turning 36. So it's 12 plus 12 plus 12 equals 36. It's so crazy. And I remember, like, being 12 years old, just thinking, I was like, wow, what's going to happen that year? Like, something crazy is going to happen. What's magical things going to happen? And I was like, okay, I'm going to get to that year. And it's like, I'm going to have the craziest party. I'm going to just, like, live this crazy night and epic thing. My head's going to explode. All these magical things are going to happen. So here we fast forward to five days before my birthday on a, on a special, special day. And I have no plans, like nothing. And I'm just like, oh, my God, 12, 12, 12 equals 36 is coming up and I have no plans. Like, this is so disappointing. I was hoping to be like in India, like in the middle of like this mystical place or having an orgy like on top of a club. Who knows what, right? Some one of these things. Nothing's happening. I have no plans. I said, this is so disappointing. And I got a phone call. And it's someone from Hunter. I was at Hunter College, about to start working on my thesis. And she's like, oh, there's like ayahuasca ceremony happening in Brooklyn. Do you want to go? I was like, sure. It's not India or the Amazon, but I'll take it. I have no other plans. And I almost kind of jokingly accepted. I was like, fuck it. I have nothing else. So I go to this ayahuasca ceremony in Greenpoint, in a yoga studio and I'm like okay this is so embarrassing and just like wow I should be in the Amazon or I should be in a mountain in Tibet or like an orgy in the limelight or whatever this kind of crazy club that doesn't exist anymore it's so disappointing I'm embarrassed I'm not gonna tell anyone I didn't go with anyone close to me I went by myself I was just like okay I'm just gonna like pretend nothing's happening and try to make the best out of this I just had really high expectations and I'm there with three people in a yoga studio. There's a, a man that claims to be some sort of curandero, which is like a shaman figure. And he has ayahuasca. And I said, okay, I'll try it. I've always been connected to the spiritual side, a lot of meditation, a lot of fasting. Always, That's always been part of who I am. So I'm sitting there meditating. I take the ayahuasca. 40 minutes pass by. Nothing happens to me. The guy next to me is vomiting. The other person next to me is crying. Someone else looks like they're levitating. And I'm just like, fuck, I don't feel anything. I'm just like, I had done so much research about this that I was like, fuck, I'm one of those people that's not uh, meant to see anything today because I'm not ready. I'm not spiritually connected. I'm not spiritually ready for what it's offering me. I'm just like one of these people. And I was like, fuck, it's so disappointing and I have a sense of, like, anxiety because I'm not seeing anything. Everyone's having this experience. Um, but then I was like, oh, my stomach hurts. So I go to the bathroom. I put my pants down, sit in the toilet. And I'm like, well, I got to take a shit. Wait, it's not, I'm not, wait, I'm not taking a shit. I'm sitting in the toilet. And I look between my legs and I see so much light. It feels like when you're in the highway and someone's blasting their headlights like these like 
giant lights on you and it's coming out of the toilet and I'm like what is this light coming out of the toilet it's coming out of my ass and then I start to have like 10,000 orgasms I fall off the toilet pants are rolled down belts unbuckled and light is streaming across the floor horizontally because I'm laying on the floor and I try to get up and I see the beam of light go to the corner of the room coming out of my ass and it's just like this light and orgasms and the curandero who's the shaman is like knocking on the door is like are you okay okay in there are you okay <laughs> I'm more than okay like leave me alone I'm having 10,000 orgasms blah 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 water's coming out of my eyes water's coming out of my mouth my ears everywhere I'm just kind of exploding having this gigantic orgasm I don't know eventually I come down after a couple of minutes and I go back and I sit in my yoga mat and then I start having visions I see my unborn daughter appear to me this female energy this super energetic child that wants to be with me my deceased mother traumas from from when I was crossing the border as a kid Um, I started seeing all these visions millions and bazillions of colors everything that I read about I'm just in this amazing journey that I that I wanted on this special day of December 12th of 2012 and it was just this amazing experience and the shaman singing the whole time it's a really beautiful thing like this shaman that just like dressed like a regular person all of a sudden is like the real shaman amazing so I had this amazing experience so afterwards I was like okay that experience that I had when I came back to the to the yoga studio to the mats it felt like everything that I read about like happened but what happened to me in the bathroom like what was that he said to me that's the first time you did ayahuasca And the ayahuasca was trying to cleanse your stomach because you have a problem in your stomach. I went to Woodhull Hospital and got a colonoscopy done. And they found out I had stage 3B colon cancer. And if it was a couple months away, it would have gone to stage 4, which is terminal. So that is how I found out I had cancer. And it was because of the ayahuasca. After that, I had uh, radiation, chemotherapy, two surgeries. In between all all that, I did a lot of ayahuasca. A Korean healer appeared, like just emerged. I had uh, this amazing person, those seances appeared to me. This Jewish healer appeared to me. This Chinese shaman appeared. And I mean by appearance, like they just entered my life and they started treating me. And I had all this ancient medicine around me, along with the Western medicine. And during all my journeys of experiencing ayahuasca and cambo and peyote and like all these things, like I found out that um, it was obviously clear that the cancer came because of my trauma. And the trauma that I had of being separated from my parents and the war and crossing and Tijuana and that girl that was raped and seeing all of these, all that trauma was all there. And I held it in my stomach for so long and eventually it developed into a tumor that almost killed me. And here it is, the ancient medicine came back and saved my life. 
So it's like it, it all ties in just the traumas, the post-traumatic stress disorders that happens from the crossing journeys that, that people are going through. You know, like I said, and I was in the first wave of undocumented immigrants. So I was the first wave to also suffer from the traumas. So what's going to happen to all these children that are in cages right now? What's going to happen to all these children that are going to these caravans? Like what, what is all this trauma and all this stress? What is that going to develop into the future? So I am in the forefront of what's happening there. And I was blessed by the ayahuasca to be here and healthy and to talk about it right now. And this is how it all kind of ties in, you know, it's like, the, you know, it's not just about crossing, but it's also what happens afterwards and then the traumas and, and what happens to these people once, once they do cross, if they even cross. I'm still an artist now in New York City where I incorporated um, this same tripachuca technique into my new drawings that I'm making. The most important thing is that I'm still playing with undocumented immigrants, the same game. And it feels like we're mapping our journeys that never connect, they never touch. The one kid that I play with, he's 18 years old and he just crossed two years ago from El Salvador. So his journey is very different than mine, but they're very parallel to each other. Like as an artist, like I feel like I'm responsible to talk about my story and the ayahuasca and how like these ancient medicines can help with traumas as opposed to just giving um, antidepressants and like this other kind of medication to anyone that's dealing with the trauma as an immigrant. And I also like draw parallels to the, you know, my descendants are Mayan, you know, we built pyramids. We have deep connection to our spirituality, to the use of plants, through ritual. And because of colonization and globalization is completely wiped out and erased. So like, I guess like as a survivor of cancer and as a survivor of my border crossing, I feel like I have somewhat of responsibility to, to talk about this and to make work about it, but also like actually like make, do something about it. That is that is my crossing story. Thank you. From us all, thank you, Lupe. And doing something about it, he is. Lupe is currently taking donations to purchase and distribute food and supplies for the undocumented community, who has been hit particularly hard in these times. I recorded Lupe's story for Yard Tales on the traditional territory of the Canarsie and Lenape Nations, or Bedsty, Brooklyn. I recorded and produced the rest of this episode on the unceded territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam Nations, or Vancouver, BC. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks again, Lupe, for sharing your incredible life journey with us. And if any listeners would like to make a donation or find out how you can help Lupe keep the undocumented fed, you can find out more information in our show notes. You can also follow him on Instagram at Guadalupe Maravilla, and you can see some of his current work at guadalupemaravilla.com and at ppowgallery.com. 
Yard Tales is executive produced by Jacob Bronstein, Andy Outis is our design director, and Davis Lloyd is our production assistant. Original music and sound design by myself and James Ash. Shout out to Andy Cotton for the dope-ass theme music. Thanks for letting me put a little remix on it for this show. If you like Yard Tales, be sure to follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please use Apple Podcasts to rate and review Yard Tales because it really helps point more listeners to the show. You can find more information, images, and additional audio at yardtales.live. And check us out on Instagram at Yardtales and Facebook at Yardtales Podcast. If you want to leave feedback or reach out for any reason, send us an email to info at yardtales.live. Be sure to listen to the end of each episode where we feature audience members' own call-in yard tales. And be sure to tune in next week when Susan Tran, good friend and neighbor, tells some of her own harrowing yard tales. And we had to crawl through like open sewers and the jungle. It was not a short trip. You're eating bugs, trying to stay alive, trying to escape, trying to get to the water. And if you're still listening, that means you might have had a real connection to this podcast. And maybe you have a yard tale of your own that you want to tell. If so, go to yardtales.live slash call in yardtales for detailed instructions on how to do so. If we dig your story, we'll feature it at the end of a future episode. And now we'll let Christine Howard Sandoval take us out with her own call in yardtale. My name is Christine Howard Sandoval, and this is my yardtale. I'll never forget the time, one of my earliest experiences in education, when it felt like I had crossed a boundary into the specialized space of smart people. When I went into the AP class in philosophy during my senior year of high school, I went to Independence High in San Jose, California, and I was in the teaching academy, which meant that I was learning how to teach alongside learning as the, all of the things that you learn when you're in high school. And by the time that we got to senior year, our philosophy teacher, Mrs. Smith, who was our mentor and champion, an incredible teacher, who we had for three years. Um, So we were quite close to her. And she really created a safe space for us. We debated race, gender, class, and different political issues for years through some of the texts that she introduced to us. And now she was creating a bridge for primarily female-identified students of color to join an otherwise very privileged space in the AP program, which to me was this, it was like, wow, the AP program, it had really had this, I guess, stigma of being this very elite, smart program for the best and the brightest students in the school. And the fact that we were, uh, what I felt, I felt like we were being allowed to join the class. And I remember the day 
that we literally walked into the class on the first day of school. We walked in as a very small group of all-female students of color into a predominantly white classroom. And I, I just remember the looks on everyone's faces. Our teachers had a look of both excitement and I could see that they were nervous. The class had looks of confusion, being uncomfortable. There was definitely a tension in the air. We were, I remember, very self-guarded. We were very nervous. And being nervous means that our pride kind of flared up. And we were definitely protecting ourselves in that space. As the year went on, we eventually started to build relationships with students in that class that felt genuine. And the entire experience that year was a huge education in and of itself, just to be present and be invited into a space like the AP program. I am the first college graduate in my immediate family, and I'm pretty sure that I'm the first person in my extended family with a master's degree. Currently, I'm an assistant professor of interdisciplinary praxis at Emily Carr University in British Columbia. And I'm a professional artist and I teach what I know through my practice as an artist. I exist in a very, very privileged space. And as a teacher and as a woman who has such clear memories of that young girl walking into the AP class and feeling both invited and also like I represented a kind of threatening presence. I want to open up those opportunities for students of color with the agency and the privilege that I have right now. It's a huge part of my practice and my goal as a teacher in higher education. And that experience of crossing that boundary had an indelible effect on who I am today. And that's my yard tale. <laughs>